0: Hey everyone, you're listening to episode 34 of the Finish Line podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today we're going to be sitting down with Ravi Jayakaran, president and CEO of Medical Ambassadors International. Ravi currently leads Medical Ambassadors International, which works to sustainably transform communities around the world through Christ-centered partnership, resource assessment, and customized training. His story begins with his grandfather, who left behind a 2,000-year family tradition of Hinduism to become one of the first Christians in his community in India. Growing up in the faith, Ravi went on to pursue a degree in veterinary medicine before transitioning to full-time work with World Vision. In 2017, he took over leadership of MAI full-time. Medical Ambassadors began as a traditional medical mission trip-style organization with U.S. surgeons providing medical care in Vietnam and several other countries. Over time, MAI expanded well beyond medicine to a broader community health model known as Community Health Evangelism, or CHE. Since then, MAI has amassed lesson plans on over 10,000 topics from rabbit rearing to mushroom harvesting to microenterprise to serve over 2,600 communities in 75 different countries. Ravi has amazing insight into what it takes to drive sustainable change rooted in the gospel. Listen now to hear what he has to say. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind you about our finish line sprints. If you've been getting a lot out of this podcast and are looking for a way to take it to the next level, you should consider starting or joining a sprint. A sprint is a guided program for small groups meant to lead you through the overarching biblical themes related to wealth and money while allowing you to explore the restored freedom and purpose that comes with choosing a financial finish line. The sprint guide is completely free and available on our website at finishlinepledge.com slash sprint. Sprints are also completely self-led, so you don't need a trained leader or someone who's been through the program before. All you need are a couple friends to get started. So check it out and get a group together today. With that, let's get started. Well, thanks so much for joining us this evening, Ravi. We've been really looking forward to speaking with you.
1: It's a pleasure joining you guys. Thank you for having me on.
0: I'm hoping you can just get us started with a little bit about your background and your story. Okay. I grew up in India
1: and was in a nominal Christian family, nominal because my my parents were nominal. But my grandfather, from my dad's side, had a dramatic, dramatic conversion. He was a Hindu priest. Someone came as an evangelist in his village and shared the good news He got interested, got curious, and finally ended up becoming a Christian follower of Christ and got thrown out of his family, a traditional family that could trace their ancestors over 2,000 years. And they're never married out of that, never followed any other gods but their Hindu gods. And when he became a Christian, my great-granddad cut him off and he gave him time. He said, 13 days. We'll have a funeral for you. You'll be considered dead. And if you come back on your knees begging for forgiveness, we'll take you back and all will be forgiven. And the long, the short story there is he never went back. And praise God, he never did because he went on to become a pastor and an evangelist and led his whole the new place that he moved to, to the Lord. There were very few people, he belonged to a, a group called the Chetiyars, and very, very, very few Christians among the Chetiyars. So that was kind of our background, yet my dad was nominal, and he raised us as nominal Christians. That was when I was 21, went for a youth camp. I was in university, and at this camp, for the first time in my life, I heard about being born again. We went to church regularly. We went to the local Anglican church because my dad was in the army. And I had never heard that you must be born again. So I checked in this little Bible that my mom had given. Not not a very small Bible, but it was nicely zipped up, a white cover and nice zip up, side with gold and all that. I'd never opened it. Started checking everything. Somehow I believed that my mom had given this to me, so it should be real. And I checked up every one of those things and I actually said, you must be born again. Unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. It's like, how come nobody told me that? And then for the first couple of days in the youth camp, I was like, these guys are crazy. I'm the only one that's sane here. And then one morning I got up and it was just exactly the day after my 21st birthday. And I had... Planned to have a big party and all with my friends, but somehow God just stopped that, and I was still at this camp. And I got up that morning; it was the twenty sixth of October, and I said, "What if? <laughs> what if they are right and I'm wrong? Then I'm in I'm in trouble." So I said, "You know, God, I never n- did not believe in God. I knew He was up there somewhere, but had nothing to do with me." And I said, "If you're real." If you're there, if I haven't pushed things too far, give me another chance. And God just started piercing my heart. He spoke to me like such a powerful way. I thought, you know, everyone at that youth camp would come to the Lord. Turned out to be the only one that responded because I was like so convicted. The last message of the day I was praying, Lord, if, I, if it's not too late, give me another chance. And the preacher stopped preaching, and he said, I want to pray. If there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus and would like to receive him as Savior, raise your hand. And I was like, I had both my hands up. He was like, I see both your hands, brother. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) And that transformed my life. It changed my perspective. I made a commitment to him that if he show me what I need to do, I will do it, no matter what. And as often happens with God, you know, He's okay, that's good. And he let me continue, finished, did well at university, became a doctor. By the way, a doctor of veterinary medicine, far removed from where I am right now. <laughs> but the principles that I learned were just, just the things that I needed to learn. And went into practice, did various things. And I was with an NGO, with the corporate sector, and at a point of time where God said he wanted me to move and move into more holistic development, so sharing the good news through word and deed. I was in a secular organization at this point of time. So I joined World Vision, World Vision International, first in India, then God took us to Cambodia, from Cambodia to China, from China back to Cambodia, the Asia-Pacific region. So I was food security and disaster mitigation advisor for the region, for 18 countries. And then God moved us to another place. So I was working with the Asian Development Bank, then United Nations Development Program. And then the Lord brought us to the U.S. I keep saying us because along this journey in 1977, I met my wife and she and I are born again on the same day, a year apart. I didn't know she existed. So that's that's the powerful way the Lord works. And, you know, he kept my sort of status by allowing me to be born again a year earlier than her, but on, <laughs> on exactly the same day. So we moved to the US. I worked with another international organization. And then in 2017, moved here into California to take over as president, CEO of Medical Ambassadors. So that's the kind of journey that we've had. We have two sons, both love the Lord. One is with his family in Dubai, one is in the Bay Area with his family. So, yeah, we,
2: we're an expanded family now. Yeah, wow, Ravi, that's a pretty incredible story about how your ancestors and relatives came to faith and how that has all played out all the way down to your story and what you're doing today. I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about how Medical Ambassadors International started along the way. I know there's a long, rich history there as well, and, and to see how that played out to the point of where you intersected into the picture as well.
1: Yeah, thanks, Kaelin. So Medical Ambassadors started around 1980, I've been reading up about one of the persons that had a big influence, a guy called Dick Hillis. And I think the earliest was somewhere in 77, 77 or so that he got involved. He was an evangelist, a strong evangelist. And he reached out to various people, was invited to go to a particular church. And in that church were this family called Ray Benson, Ray was a nominal Christian. His wife, Lou, was a powerful believer, been praying for him. And when the pastor said, hey, we got this evangelist, Nicholas coming here, who would keep him in the house? So Ray held on to her right hand <laughs> so that she wouldn't raise it. She raised the other hand. <laughs> so that we'll do it. And so long story short, what they had to do was for a week, they had these you know evangelistic meetings in the church, and it was Ray's job to <laughs> drive Dick Hillis to church and bring him back. So he was forced to listen because Ray would ask him, "What do you think about that? What do you think about that?" And long story short, again, by the end of that week, he had given him his life to the Lord, and then, for all practical purposes, was a good Christian. So tithing and all that stuff, but he was a surgeon. And he didn't think he needed to do anything more than that. So, Hillis came back to Modesto. That's where we are, you know, very close to Modesto. We're in a place called Salida. Salida is the exit of Modesto. It's about four and a half miles from where I stay in Ripon. And so, he comes back and God puts a burden on Nicholas' heart because he is a ministry launcher he's launched a whole bunch of minutes and then he comes back here and God has been putting a burden on his heart for health care for people in the developing world with focus on you know Southeast Asia so Vietnam Cambodia that region and he's like okay we need somebody who's a medical doctor who's charismatic to get this launched otherwise it's not going to get launched and God reminds him of Ray Benson. So, But the guy never wanted to move anywhere outside. He's a faithful giver. He's a supporter. He's not going to move out. So he goes to his house. And long story again, you know, how Ray Benson says, I'm very busy. I do six surgeries a day. And, you know, I'm all booked up for the next six weeks. (laughs) This guy says, okay, let me see the seventh week. And he had a practice of not booking for the seventh week till, you know, one week, then slots of six weeks. And he says, you know what? Here's a pencil. Mark it out. Come with me. Come with me to Vietnam. And then the rest of the story best told in the words of his daughter, I managed to speak with her. She was eight at that time. And she's probably, you know, in past retirement now. And she said, he was gone. Dad was gone with Dick Hillis for over a week. We had no messages, no telex messages. You remember telex messages? I tell the people in my office, and like, what is it?" telex? <laughs> so, <laughs> so no telex messages from his office, nothing. We had no idea what happened. No phone calls. Of course, you couldn't make international calls that easily. And then she says, and he came back. And as he walked into the house, we knew something had happened. He was a different man. And so there's a deep burden to serve and make medical care available. So that's how we got started. 1980, officially, got started. And he would get hold of doctors. He would get up there and preach and say, we need to go and help these people. They're struggling. And people would just get up (laughs) and count me in. I'm going for 10 days. I'm going for this. And so that's how they started. So medical professionals going out there. And the first stage was provision of services. Provision of services, healthcare, including medicines and, you know, whatever buildup is required for clinics and stuff. And they started doing that. That was the first stage. And it continued for a long time. Then the second stage we brought in, as Ray Benson was coming to the point of retiring, he brought in another doctor called Paul Calhoun, Dr. Paul Calhoun. And Paul Calhoun came in. He was a more public health kind of person, so very focused on prevention of disease and so on. And he was also an analyst. So he started analyzing things, and he said, hey, we are treating the same person with the same disease, but we're not doing anything to prevent it. So we need to build that in. So public health became a part of that. So that's the second phase, the prevention part. So from provision to prevention. So at this stage, you're sort of doing both, providing as well as preventing. And then seeing that prevention is better than cure, that became the biggest focus. And then people were getting better. Their disease levels went down. They were healthier. And then they came back and said, you know, this is great. You've helped us prevent disease. We're not spending so much and not getting into debt. But how do we thrive? Show us how to thrive. What do I need to do to improve my agriculture, to increase micro enterprise? How do I take care of my family better? And initial response was, hey, we're doctors. You know, public health was enough of a stretch. <laughs> we can't get into all of this. And they said, well, you're doctors, you should know everything. (laughs) It's like, yeah, it's not quite that way that it works. So then we came back and started, hey, listen, we can bring experts. Let's bring agriculture experts. Let's bring microenterprise experts along with us. And so that's how the team started expanding to various things. And they started integrating it. That's the third stage. So provision, prevention, integration. And that's when this whole concept, community health evangelism, came in. So it's it's really an integrated, holistic development program that's propagated through using simple lesson plans that have a little skip to explain things. It's a simple strategy, two-page sort of lesson plan that covers it. And it started growing. And then we found this guy in Uganda, a missionary, his name was Stan Rowland, and they brought him in. He he had been calling this community health evangelism. It was actually a very simple participatory tool, you know, where you engage the community in the planning, you engage the community in analyzing its resources, you engage the community in doing what is necessary. So it's sustainable right from the beginning. And, you know, that's how Stan was pursued to come and join us and, you know, here's an organization that will do all this. And he came in and his condition was, listen, I'll come in, I'll do this, bring CHE, community health evangelism through your organization. But you stop sending these doctors and, you know, treating, and then they come back and treat the same person over and over again. It's very confusing to do that. You know, pass that on to other people. You guys focus on this holistic community development in the lesson plan they also had things that were related to word and deed both very well balanced because word and deed need to be in balance we call that integral mission or holistic mission some organizations call it transformational development some call it holistic development but essentially it's word and deed whatever you need to respond to the compassionate needs of people, but do it in a way that's sustainable so they can continue to do it once you're gone, you be the catalyst for it. So it's low cost. It doesn't bring too many resources from outside. Of course, there's knowledge resources that come from outside, but keep it as low as possible. We call that labor-intensive development. So that's how it started growing. And Che just just exploded. It just started growing. Lesson plans were added. We had like something like 10,000 lesson plans covering everything wow. from rabbit rearing to mushroom cultivation to, you know, small enterprise and just a range of things. And then we went to the next stage, which was how do we consolidate this? Consolidate this into... Appropriate, relevant buckets, so there's some order in what we're doing, and that process still continues. They're still looking at various things. We allowed people to use it after they've been through training and make their own adaptations. So, if you look at numbers, it's probably eighteen thousand lesson plans, but then you know it's the same topic that was modified and so on. But about ten thousand different topics. So then we went to the consolidation phase. And, of course, that's the time when, you know, the economy tanked and we had the 2008 crisis and result in some things that we didn't realize at that stage that God was multiplying the organization again because out of it was birthed a thing called the global chain network. And that is working now in 132 countries. So we had our own thing, which we grew and consolidated, and now we're, you know, in 75 countries, working in 2,613 communities. But the biggest strength of our organization is that every community, every one of these 2,613 communities has 20 or more volunteers. And these are people from the community, know the language, know the culture, and belong to those communities. So they continue to grow it. And once they have grown, they reach out to their neighbors. So it's, you know, we suddenly find probably it's not just 2,613. It's far more than that. But this is what we know at this point of time. And so then came this after consolidation, the stage of expansion. So what we're doing now is... There is need also within this matrix of integrated development that we do through CHE, there's a need to specialize. So we're specializing in community health evangelism for women, for families, for men, microenterprise, for CHE with children, and now CHE for people with disabilities. So we're launching a campaign early next year For Disability Concerns. We had the pleasure of having Johnny Erickson do the introduction to this whole thing. So that's the expansion stage. I joined uh, Medical Ambassadors in 2017. And in the process, like I said, you know, sometimes God just leaves us to do what we are doing and what flows naturally. And then he reaches out like, you know, and says, hey, I want you here. And he brought Vimla and I here to California. And we've been here since then, 2017, leading the organization and taking it in the place where God wants it to go. So we've started some new programs, special programs. So we set up an academy called Medical Ambassadors Academy. The focus of this is to serve the servants. You know, we've got our teams of these volunteers who train others. But there's nothing to really build their capacity, so team building, management training, and so on. So in 2020, we started MAI Academy. We also saw while we were working in these communities that you know disasters hit, and rather than have those you know big. Uh, when I used to be in World Vision, you know, with these big trucks that would come in with relief response and so on, but how do we do that so they can use their own resources to respond? So a low-cost response in that same principle. So we've just set up a crisis response fund. And I'm sending both of you books on that and how how you can access that. And so we started a new ministry of crisis response. And then during a COVID crisis, you know, a lot of knee-jerk reactions with various countries have been, stop people from moving out, you know, literally stop them from getting out of their village. And these are guys who had to do some work every day. If they didn't, they would be hungry. So they were getting into debt. They were ending up selling their children to traffickers. So that emerged very recently. So, hey, we need to do something for prevention of trafficking. And the more we started Looking at it, you know, there's a saying, there's no greater blindness than those who have eyes that cannot see. And some of this was happening right there because we were like, wow, this is what's happening. And we got deeper into it and people saw what we are open to any kind of program that is needed. So we started doing that. We also found that if you want to get people connected, their heart connected with a mission, then they need to make a trip there. And of course, under COVID, we couldn't do that. <laughs> so we introduced these virtual vision trips. And it has been just amazing. You know, first thoughts were, can't be done. And now it's getting done. So our next trip, we did DR Congo. Two trips is pretty dangerous to get into DR Congo. so, And that's where we have lots of our mission work. And then uh, now we're looking at the Middle East, North Africa region, and then we'll to Southeast Asia. And so all of these new places, Northeast Asia, North Africa, and East Africa will also be on the, the next platform to be done. So these various things have been emerging in terms of expansion of the program. So it's a rather long answer to your short question.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's a lot in there that I'd love to unpack during the rest of this interview. I'm really interested, Ravi. It sounds like medical ambassadors started with providing medical services in in maybe Vietnam specifically, and it's just it kind of exploded from there over the next four decades. And now... As an organization, you have all kinds of solutions, like you said, 10,000 different trainings. And I'm really curious, as you launch new initiatives and as you are making connections and patterns and learning more, how are you deciding what needs to address? How do you determine what are the most urgent needs that you're equipped to meet in the areas where you're working?
1: Okay. So typically, every program is tailor-made for the needs of that community. So you get into a community, you do an initial sort of a three-day seminar on vision casting. You know, let's draw a map of your village. And this is how it is. And then ask the older people, is this how it always was? Yeah. And then ask the younger people, you know, if you would like to see changes. Have you been to any other villages? You saw changes? What would you like to see here? And then they're excited. They're drawing this. And we should have this, we should have this, and this community and self-sufficiency so we don't have to go doing labor work in somebody else's place and leaving our families behind and stuff like that. Okay, so that's, that's what we call a vision. And from here to here, what do we need to do? And some would be, you know, like, oh, you know, we want, don't want to dream because you are not going to see it happen. Said, hey, listen, come to a neighboring village. We'll show you or come to that village and go and meet them. And then they come back. They're all fired up. This is what we want to do. Okay. All right. So what you need to do is find leaders from your own community, eight or 10 people who would run the show. You will manage it. You'll run it. And we'll go a little more detailed with that vision training. And once they've seen that, people are really, okay, that's what we want. Say so now each of you ten guys choose one person who will be a Che volunteer. We'll train that person, but it's gotta be someone you trust, not your not relative or your friend, but someone who you know will once they're trained, will go out and do work. So they start this, and then that we train these guys, and then we do a sort of a community analysis. Uh, we call that ABCD. So asset-based community development. So what do we really need? What are the resources we have? What are the things that need to be done here? And so then you tailor make that program. So we do a TOT1, so training of trainers. And then that's about what you need to have with them. These are the things. So this is a mix out of this 10,000 lesson plans. We just need to do 15 or 20 things. Because if they don't have any chicken raising there, you don't need to do chicken raising unless, you know, there's potential opportunities there. So with the resources that they have, what is the best to do? So sustainability then becomes an important thing. You know, otherwise you have programs that get done and then they're not sustainable because, you know, the three S's are not connected. So you need a supply of raw material. You need skills to manage that. And then you need sales of that. So here it becomes sustainable because those resources are there. They didn't know the skills, so build up the skills. And and then there's a market for it. So we look at that and then do the training. And then the external trainer, who's also a volunteer, comes, trains. And whatever they learn, they go out and train others. So the first year, you have like 2% of the community knows about CHE. And then we've got these, you know, 10 people who are now the CHE volunteers who've been trained. You have 10 supervisors, kind of the team that manages the whole, the leadership. And then each of these guys, over the course of one year, reaches out to 15 households. So you've got 150 households covered by the end of the first year. So what we say is first 2%, then 15% of the community knows Che. And we tell them the things that you have learned, so sanitation, encouraging to be vaccinated, kids to be vaccinated, having a garbage pit, having a latrine, you know, all of those things should be practiced by you so that's called a che household so they develop their own sort of checklist are they doing this are they also doing bible study so each thing has a lesson plan on actual thing that you're doing plus a spiritual dimension you know a filter a simple water filter will filter out all of this but you've seen in your life how are you going to filter that out you know there's no physical filter. There's the Lord Jesus that cleanses you by his blood. And then as we go in, it's so perfectly synced. There are people coming to the Lord So the end of the first year. Now these, you know, 150 people, households have been reached. They themselves now reach out to another five to seven in the next year. So you go from 2% to 15% to 75%. And by the end of the fourth year, you've got the whole community knows about community health evangelism. Now what we found is at least a third of those are CHE households, because not everyone practices what they've learned, right? But in due course, they will, because they see the benefits. But the beautiful thing is out of the CHE households, at least 50% of them, Have become believing households. So this is in a in a community where you know you can openly talk the gospel. So in countries that are you know South America and other places, East Africa, you know West Africa, Central Africa, parts of West Africa, because Nigeria would be a challenge, but you know Ghana and these places that's completely open to the gospel. In fact, recently. In Coteva, Ivory Coast, the government saw our program and said, we want to introduce this in all the medical colleges, all the universities, all the doctors and nurses must learn Che. And I said, hey, by the way, we know you're a Christian organization and you have Christian programs, but this is an essential part of it. So we're seeing this multiplication taking place. So it's relevant to the community's needs. It builds on the existing resources and it makes sure that it's holistic. So it continues to grow.
2: Ravi, that is just a truly incredible model. And just to hear all the layers of that and how that has built out. I will say, I just read When Helping Hurts not too long ago, after we had probably five or six different podcast guests mention it or quote it or recommend it. And after reading that, listening to everything that you describe is almost like textbook best practices for what they talk about in that book, even down to the ABCD asset-based community development and the focus on training instead of, of just pouring resources and materials in, but really focusing on not only the physical resources, but the human resources that are already in a community. And you guys have just Really embraced every single aspect of that in what you're doing. And you guys have just really fully integrated the faith aspect of it in terms of tying the gospel to all of the change that is happening in these families and in these villages. And I'm curious if you could kind of walk us through almost like a case example of a village, what, you know, kind of might look like when you guys arrive. Even what does it look like for you guys to arrive? Who, who gets there? Who is actually doing the vision casting that you talked about? And then what's that look like over the next few years? How long are you guys in that village? And how does that expand to the neighboring villages? I know you touched on a little bit about that, but you know just kind of an example of what that might look like.
1: Okay, so let me tell you of a village in West Africa, in in the country of Togo. So the village was Vivati, and our sort of area coordinators. So we have area coordinators that oversee country levels. Unless it's a huge country, then you might have two area coordinators. So Daniel Pobier was the area coordinator and an evangelist. So his team of people would go evangelizing and reaching out to different villages, sometimes seeing success, sometimes not. Sometimes he's offended to communities, really poor, very needy. And then there's like, oh, we don't have anything to give them. Let's just preach the gospel and get out of there. And Daniel was kind of discouraged. There's got to be more to this. You know, Jesus talked of word and deed. James clarifies that. And then he talks about, he talked to the same group of people. You are the light of the world. And he didn't turn to another side and said, you guys are the salt of the earth. He said to the same, you're the salt of the earth. And that's about being, being what we talk about. And light of the world is to proclaim, to preach, to enlighten. And these two had to go together. He somehow didn't see that happening. So he heard about Che, he went, signed up to get trained. So he went to the first level of training. He said, this makes sense. Is there something that's a little more and would somebody be willing to help me to go for that training? So he went to the Philippines where we had one of our centers for training from Africa, from West Africa. He went there and he came back, he was on fire. So our internship is almost like four to five weeks. So you got TOT1, TOT2, TOT3, TOT4. So there's practical stuff, there's evaluation, then there's project planning and all of that. So the works. TOT1 is all you really need to get started. So he's got all this, He comes back all on fire, and he tells his evangelist team, you know, I've found it. <laughs> Word and deed. I've seen the change in Philippines. That's what it is. And so this team is like a real skeptic. No, 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 that doesn't work. And he says, okay, let's choose a village where we'll do it. So they said, let's try Vivati. If it works in Vivati, we will believe you and we will proceed. So he says, Yeah, let's let's try. And he didn't know all about Vivati because that's where these guys had gone. And for five years they had a you know hand pump in the village which the government had put. It had broken. And they went and called the guy to fix it. And he said, you need parts for about $100 worth of stuff to fix it. And in five years, they couldn't raise the money to fix that. And so they said, so his team said, if it works, then <laughs> we've been to this place. Many mission agencies have retired from there. They're like, there's no way we can do any changes here. Yeah, they're steeped in witchcraft. They have totem poles everywhere with these voodoo doctors and stuff like that. So they're going to this village called Vivati. And Daniel's there. I saw it happen in Philippines. It should happen here in my country. So they they go get started. And they can't even get 10 people to be in the leadership. Okay? Village of over 1,000 people. So they get these seven people together. And one of the most vocal of the lot is this lady called Tassi. So Tassi says, get on with it. Seven is enough. I'll make up for the rest. (laughs) And then she says, I like your program. And I can see this is about Christianity. So I just want to let you know, lots of mission agencies have come here and gone. Nothing's happened. But I like your program. I like this whole thing of clean water and everything. So they started training program." With seven people. And six of the seven people come to the Lord. That was not the focus of the training. The training was how to build up CHE volunteers and stuff. The one that didn't become a Christian was Tasi. She was also a witch doctor. And she said, you know, I will never become a Christian. But you go ahead with this. So now they said, listen, we needed ten volunteers, but you guys are only seven So let's do a training for fifteen people. So find fifteen people. So they train the fifteen people. And at the end of the fifteen days, you know, the one week training for these fifteen people, all of them come to the Lord. Which makes Tassie even more agitated than she says, There's never any way I'll ever become a Christian. So don't waste your time. And then they started their work and reaching out as things started changing in the village more che households, people caring for one another. Then someone said, hey, listen, we've got this hand pump here for so long. Let's put in some money and let's fix it. So they fixed the hand pump. The hand pumps get this good water coming out. And then they said, you know, let's reach out to the government and ask them if they make a couple of more of these and now the government is surprised. So much interest in all that. We are, how, Who told you you're, you need to drink safe water? <laughs> They're like, we've started this program. So they say, and then they come in and they built a couple of more water tanks, you know, hand pumps. And so that's improving. Changes are taking place. Every time they meet, they have a little, you know, time for devotion. And then as the f- devotions finish, then they start their actual meetings. And... Tassi would sit facing in the opposite direction, away from them, so that everybody knew that she's not one of these guys. And as soon as they finished, she would get up and come and stand right in the middle of the group. And she said, I will never be, become a Christian. I see lots of people are becoming Christians here, but i will never become a Christian. So there's don't waste your time. And then it went on for two, three years. And the third year, they thought, oh, this ritual now, she's going to come back and say something. She walked in, but she said something different. She said, I have watched you guys. I have sneaked up in the night to see what you do. And I have seen that you have something that I don't have. And then she turns to them and she says, I want to be a Christian. Wow. And they're like, wow. And, <laughs> and someone says, you know what, you, you can't do your witchcraft. She says, I know that. I burnt all of it and came. And I know that enough from what you guys have been talking. I have seen the power that you have is far greater than any of the power that I have had access to. She becomes a Christian. They stop their meeting that day. She gets down on her knees, the leader to the Lord, and she gets up and she's on fire for the Lord. Okay? cut to the end of four years. (laughs) That village, which could not raise $100 to fix a hand pump that was broken for five years, paid for so many to get done. They built their own church. It's not a fancy church. It's a mud building with a tin roof. They support their own pastor. And the latest is they invested $1,000 in equivalent currency to get him a motorbike, because this guy was so discouraged. He said, my gift is evangelism. And there are no other people in my village to evangelize. So I have to go to other places. And he was going on his bike, and they bought him this motorbike so that he still stays happy by doing his evangelism as they go. That village is a transformed village. 95% are believers and followers of the Lord. So disease has come down, health has improved, they have their own school, they have, you know, a church saw what they did and they said, we're we're sending you solar panels so that you can have a night school in the church building at night so the kids don't have to sit next to a kerosene lamp and smell that smoke coming in. That's the amazing power. And most of it was done with existing resources. And that's that's transformation.
0: Ravi, I'm so excited hearing you explain this. It's, it's really coming full circle. You have a village that's maybe you'd say resistant even to Christianity. And this model has broken through. The, the provision is an avenue to, to sharing Jesus with a people that are now launching their own pastor to go share it with others. And it's really amazing how the sustainability makes that repeatable model and that village can train the next village, which can train the next two villages. And pretty soon it's undeniable the incredible impact that those steady efforts in those first four years really have launched. You mentioned a few times throughout your stories about people going and witnessing what was going on and what an impact that had on them all the way back to the founding members of MII. And I'm really curious, from your perspective, what's going on during those brief periods where someone goes and witnesses and experiences what's going on? What happens to that person that sets them on fire for the Lord?
1: Yeah, so there is the opportunity to see that it works. Jesus continuously said, come and see. (laughs) What does it cost? Come and see you know, can these things change? Come and see. And I think that's the principle of it. So when a community has grown, what we've said is people come to the Lord, try to meet in worshiping groups. So 18, 20 people can meet in a house fellowship. One that's among them takes on leadership and teaches them. And as our church grows, that fellowship grows, they reach out to other people in that. So you'll have multiple worshipping communities in every village. And then they reach out to neighboring villages. So when they go out to neighboring villages and share what has happened, people say, you know, that's like a pipe dream. I don't think that can happen in my village, you know. Just like Vivati said, there's no way we can do it. You know, interesting, in Vivati itself, when they first went in, Daniel and his team went in, there were no women there. So I said, where are all the women? So they've gone to the neighboring village to get their tapioca powdered. And they didn't feel bad that all the men were sitting there and listening, right? And only the women had gone. and And as it started growing, the women said, listen, we don't want to be missing out on all the stuff that's happening here because we go all the way there can we mobilize we will put together what we can and can we get somebody to help us technically so that we have our own you know mill here to grind and do this and so these guys are reaching out and say like hey what happened you guys don't come here anymore to get your you know your tapioca ground what's happening so come and see So then they see this micro enterprise developing, and then they walk around and say, You've got all of these things happening here, you know, households. They're uniquely different by comparison. And they're healthier. They're not wasting their money on getting, you know, treatment, whatever, you know, shoddy treatment is available. And the biggest testimony is come and see. Come and see. And it also applies to you know potential donors you know can this work you know what what does it cost you and you know over the years in the last four years the ROIM we started at a dollar 35 cents per person impacted per year came down to dollar 13 cents in 2019 it was a dollar two cents per person impacted this year, we are down to $0.97 cents per person impacted per year. So when we talk to them about this, like, for that kind of money, there's no way you could do that. And in so many countries, come and see. But, you know, because of COVID, we couldn't make them go and see. So we started doing these virtual vision trips. And so you interact and then our regional coordinator there answers some of the questions that people have. And then now, because of this virtual option, this new option that came about because of the restrictions of COVID, people are able to access and see what God is doing. And that makes the difference. They're on fire after that. So our next trip is from Middle East, North Africa region, which is a pretty dangerous area to visit. So those are the exciting things happening. Come and
2: see. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think you're right on with that. You mentioned about specialization, you kind of developing the CHE model in some specialized contexts. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about some of those contexts and what's different about it when you are approaching a, a specific population or a different kind of context.
1: Right. So the basic sort of foundation is the CHE integrated community develops without digressing from that. So the way we would do it is if you come to my office, you can see a a tree. So the foundations, the roots are the same principles. So community ownership, community empowerment, low resource or low external resources, you know, so those are the foundations And the sort of the central part of the tree would be the shape principles. And then whatever is appropriate for that particular community. And the specialization will be more focused on that. So, for example, we had this program called Women's Cycle of Life. So our international coordinator for that was very focused on, you know, I've worked with women. Let me do that. They have some unique problems and we can start doing it. And so they started doing this program. And the men were like, hey, all our women are there and they're doing it. We see lots of changes in them. What about us? We also matter. So guess what they call that program? Men matter. (laughs) (laughs) So when we tell that to other people, they're like, what a weird name for a program. So we tell them the background. (laughs) And then additionally, it became Families matter. So the next is microenterprise. We're looking at microenterprise. And then what we found, and I'm quoting Johnny's figures, one billion people globally have disabilities of some form or the other, starting with minor to severe disability. And if you look at disabled people per se, they constitute about 80% of them are poor because they're marginalized, they're left out of opportunities, they're slow to catch up, you're already in a handicapped race. And then to be handicapped in that handicapped race, you're really struggling. So we're trying to reach out to all of these people and specialize. We don't even know what all might happen. In 2019, we said we'll do virtual training, and it sounded like, this is time when we didn't even know what Zoom was, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now we've got all of our training can be done virtually because the guy said, can't be done. Ours is a contact, you know, exercise. They have to be there. Well, said. So we said, They'll, we can't do it. You get COVID in the process. Do you want that to happen? How can we do it? So they've come up with all sorts of options like, You know, and you'll read that in the book I send you. It's Healing Lives Post-Crisis. How they used cell phones and this and that, sometimes just photocopied and sent it using text messages and stuff. Because the further down you go, the harder it is to use technology. Yeah, right. But you can get a lot of stuff on your cell phone and moving. So that's the focus now, looking at what do we need to do there. So whatever is appropriate, whatever is relevant to that context, we're trying to bring in.
0: So Ravi, I imagine the, the scope of work that you do and the amount of countries that MII is working in could be extremely expensive. But instead, you found that costs are decreasing all the way to under a dollar per person. And that's astounding. And I'm wondering, is that a product of an organizational focus on efficiently using these dollars is it a matter of the model getting improved what is behind that and why is that so important to mai
1: yeah so we've tried to
0: maximize
1: what we're doing the impact to do things more efficiently and effectively and so we're constantly looking for that we've set up a little tiny little studio using you know whatever local stuff but it can do whatever is state-of-the-art in training. So whenever we find someone who can talk on something, we do that, then it can go down and get translated for people to use. So uh, the drive is constantly to see how we can be more efficient and effective. So that happens in two. So of course, while we're trying to continuously generate more revenue, we're trying to be efficient in the way we use it, and we try to maximize it by having more people impacted through it and continuously look for better ways of doing that. So we've increased the impact areas. We've had more programs increase. So we added 113 new communities. So that's roughly bit 800 to 1,200 people per community. So on an average, about 1,000. So that's the number of people that have been added into the communities as we work. So one side trying to increase and maximize without losing quality and also increase revenue. So that's that's the
0: drive that we have. Well, Ravi, I'm curious to know, you started as a provision ministry. Do you think there is still a role for medical missions where doctors will travel to provide medical services? Or do you think that model is no longer as effective as it once was?
1: There's a limit to medical mission trips. And, you know, I'm sure those that do them are going to object to what I'm saying. And that is essentially because of the consistency of that service. So if you have a doctor go, it's got to be the same doctor that continues not only to provide those services, but to build up the capacity of the people in that area. You know, so you're building up and training them. You latch on to maybe a local healthcare service, and then you help provide this. So we're trying to do that in the Philippines. So it involves working with the government, which which has had its own challenges because new set of government officials come in, and then they're not, you know, sympathetic to that process. We're exploring another thing with telemedicine. Is it possible to Get somebody to come over, do some preliminary training, so they know the person, and they've arranged with that. And then subsequent training is in term in terms of like telemedicine call that you talk to them, and you continue to build their capacity. So that's that's one side of it. With medical mission trips, the cost benefit is you know when you, I mean you might have ten people going; they're all paying their own costs. But for that same amount, you know, like $1, 12, 1500 per person, plus them staying there 10 days, there's more damage. So if, if you remember what, what you've read in When Helping Hurts, by the way, I'm on the Chalmers board. So Brian Fickert, who's the author of that book. So what happens is you go in there, let's say you bring all these high qualified doctors. Really, the best doctor that would work for that is a general physician. Because you, you're not likely to get specific cases that people are specialized in. So you've taken this team over there. They've gone. They're all physicians. And they've done training. And they've got medicines and everything. And then you've got in that same place, this little guy who has somehow decided not to work in a city, but work in his village, set up a small practice. And, you know, his. Small enterprise in taking the selling medicines, providing a low-cost service. And suddenly he's got these 10 doctors come into that same community and distribute medicines, vitamins, and you've got all these doctors, all the fanfare, and they come in. And then the people are like, who's going to go to that guy? He's one of us. Look at all these guys who came from the Western world, And they give free medicines, you know, and this guy charges, you know, even if it's like a 5% increase in the cost, they give it free, you know, just like any other enterprise. And I think Brian talks about, you know, somebody went in there and he has a little shop and he's making little school bags and he's got his own little stitching system and then, Someone watches that, and then the next mission trip, they come in with a 100 bags and distribute it free. And what happens to this guy's enterprise? It's gone. And then it's no longer glamorous to visit that same village again, right? So they've gone to another village or somewhere else, and the village is worse off than it was before. And that's the risk with medical missions, at the same time what happens is when you have a whole bunch of westerners come in the roll in these trucks and everyone's fancy dress you tell them not to be but you know nevertheless some of them would be distributing sweets or things like that in spite of the fact that you told them not to do it and what the community thinks is money bags visiting Let's spread our hands out and ask them. They will give us. And it's hard for you not to respond when someone comes and you see an obvious need. And it should not be what is from outside. So what you put into the center of your development is what drives it. If it's community resources, community ownership, community capacity, that's what will drive it. If you bring in external big bucks and drop it there, then that's what they'll wait to see driving the process. So, it's, you know, that's why it's, it's when you have been helping hurts. That's a book that had tremendous impact, tremendous impact on the global church. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a privilege to work with Brian Fickert, because he's one of those, you know, modern day prophets, in what he says in that book he's written a couple of other books also that you should go and take a look at
2: yeah he certainly has a pretty foundational understanding of what it really takes to change not just a person's life but a whole community or you know even a whole nation really right. for the, the level of impact that is being done through that kind of a model
1: a community must own its own transformation but at the same time, a reality is it needs to be catalyzed. And by definition, a catalyst is something by virtue of his or her presence catalyzes change. It's not part of the equation. So something needs to get it started. We're at low cost, but we still need to get people trained. The volunteers need to be trained. The quality of their training needs to be monitored and quality control has to be there in that there has to be continuous interaction when they say, Hey, what do I do in this case? I don't, I've never come across this in any training. So the whole chain can then work on, okay, we've got a case here, which with this happening, like COVID hit. Yeah. <laughs> We're like, yeah. okay, what do we do? Let's develop a lesson plan for this. But meanwhile, let's start with, we had this thing on washing hands. You know, and strangely enough, all villagers know how to sing happy birthday. So you sing twice and you use these, the rougher the quality of the soap, the more effective it is. So they started doing it. And we were able to prevent COVID. And I've got to tell you one more story. that's <laughs> really powerful. This is from Kinshasa in DR Congo. You know, so they're like, okay, what else should we do? Six feet apart. So like literally or you stand six feet apart. So they're doing that, washing the hands as much as possible. I mean, we couldn't get a hand sanitizer here in the US. So you can imagine you know, what it's like. Forget yep. hand sanitizer because there's a risk with that absolute alcohol being in the village. So let's <laughs> use other ways. And then finally, there's like, okay, what else should we do? So we said, okay, get masks, wear masks. So they went, you know, to the local village. From the village, they went down to the hospital, Christian hospital, and asked the people, how do we get masks? So the the guy was like, administrator says, we don't have enough masks for ourselves. What are we going to give you guys? Go (laughs) away. So they found out some lady who was working in their village and she sneaked out one surgical mask and it had to be green, right? So this green mask with four straps. And they went to the local enterprise in the community, which was a you know tailoring school they had started for women to make their own school uniforms for their kids so that they weren't paying that much for that. So stop all your work. Let us make these masks. So she says, Get me green cloth, because that's what it was, like surgical masks, right? So they all made it. The whole village is wearing it. All the kids wanted to wear it. Everyone's in this village. So then cut to little like a month later, the administrator is walking down the corridor and people are waiting, you know, sitting on benches. And he sees about eight or ten of them wearing masks. So it's like, where did you get that? Oh, sir, we make it in our village. Who told you to wear it? Medical ambassadors <laughs> told <laughs> us about wearing masks to prevent diseases. So, are you sure you didn't steal it from the hospital? No, sir. These are our own. So they're opening it and showing us. Now, put on my mask again. Okay, they're putting on the mask, and then there's this conversation going on. The chief of medical services comes up and he says, "What's happening here?" So, sir, they all made their own masks, and over here, okay. Can you bring some of your women from there with their sewing machines? We'll give you a room here. Make masks for us. And then the chief comes up and he says, I want a mask like the N95. So he gives a sample and we can make it. No problem. When I read that story, (laughs) I really moved looking at that. Yeah, wow. It's just amazing. And then the villagers themselves, not only this thing, they took it on themselves. We have prevented COVID in our village. We owe it to outsiders to also know about COVID. So they get these horns, you know, where you can announce. And there, there's a troop that's going on. So I put that at the back of the cover of the book. So when you get it, you'll have a look at that
0: and how that worked. It's so cool to see when... People can shift the focus from how do we survive? How do we thrive? Those that, that was the original question that you said was being asked to what is our role in helping others as such a it's the story of coming to Christ and, and starting to walk that pathway. And I think, you know, many, many people who have experienced that journey ask themselves the same kinds of questions. Earlier, you mentioned virtual Trips where you can go experience some of these things. I I was hoping you could share what opportunities could listeners have to participate more in in the work that MAI is doing. Okay. On the website, you can, I think it's still up
1: there, or it might be taken down. But you should be able to find out about virtual vision trips. But if not, write to me. My email is ravi at med-amb.org. And I will send you a link so you can watch the DR Congo virtual vision trip. It's essentially some background to the country, how it moved from Zaire to being what it is, some understanding of what the background there is, and then the kind of programs that we have. And then you actually get to see how some of the groups are reaching out to people and how the the program works. So that's essentially what it, what it does. Be on the lookout for the next trip that I think the nearest one that's getting ready is Middle East, North Africa region. So they'll be visiting Egypt on that trip. So we'll have some historical background. You know, Egypt is so closely connected to Christianity and, and how God, to God's people, went in there and came out. So it'll be good to see that. And then join us on those trips and then become part because what we try to do out of any of those trips is to find funding for a cluster of five Che villages to be, you know, supported over a four-year period, four to five-year period. So a cluster of the villages would be, you know, 800 to 1,200 is the average size of the village that you will see in some places where it's the terrain is undulating. It might be less than that, but it makes it that much more difficult. It costs roughly a $1,000 per community per year. So what we're trying to do then is find a group of people who will stay connected with that community. And we'll keep them informed of how things are growing so they will be able to track the growth and programs and so on but i would encourage you to go to our website at www.medicalambassadors.org and get to know more about our organization the story i told you about tasi is also on that so you can go to the youtube channel there and listen to her she's not on i mean speaking but you can listen to her story and how things have changed in her community so those are the ways in which we would love to connect with people. Go to our website, sign up for the newsletter. We keep you informed every month of what is happening. For Thanksgiving, we have a special program with the story of one of these CHE volunteers. And it's in a folded card that you can keep at your Thanksgiving table. Hold one place for that. Reserved, it says, reserved for a special guest. And then after everyone's seated and the place is still empty, the host takes up that card and reads out the story and then says, okay, here's the story of this Che volunteer. And let's consider what we would have, suppose the person actually came here, how much would it have cost us to make a meal for him or her? And let's make that an additional donation to medical ambassadors. And of course, you can support our programs be involved in it
0: yeah thanks for sharing There's sounds like there's lots of opportunities to get more involved so as we get to the end of our episode here i just wanted to get to our manager's minute and as a reminder we spend all this time talking about how everything including all wealth all money belongs to god and we are simply managing it we are stewards of the wealth that is entrusted to us and at the end of every episode, we like to close out by giving our listeners a quick suggestion on something that they can do with any excess or margin that they've set aside above and beyond what they need. When we have a guest on the episode, we like to give you a chance to share with our audience an idea that you might have. So could you share a suggestion for our listeners on something that they could do with any excess money that they've set aside?
1: Thank you for asking, Cody and Kayla. So as a Christian voluntary organization, we depend on donations. So we don't crank up our production so that more revenue comes in. We just crank up our prayers and ask the Lord to provide for what is required. So I would recommend for your listeners to be in prayer. Ask the Lord how he wants them to be involved, how he can use the excess funding that they have for his kingdom to be expanded. So areas in which you can be doing that is to go to our website, look at some of the options that you have. The international programs is the place. It's coded U-001. It'll make sure that it goes to field support programs, or you can be involved in any campaign that's coming up. So the nearest campaign that's coming up is the one for Thanksgiving It'll be at Thanksgiving time. It might be a little too early for you to respond to that, but we'll keep that option open so you can continue to do it. But early next year, we've got one coming up for disability concerns. So be on the lookout for that. And when that comes up on the website, you'll have an opportunity to give. But you can also go to the website and click the donate button and get involved. I would also recommend you get on there and subscribe to our newsletter because every month we try to share the story of someone on the field that's done an amazing job. So at one time we shared about Tassie, we shared about Timothy with various people that we've shared their lives about and how they've just just these ordinary people that have done incredible work. And all because they just put themselves in God's hands and God just used them in a mighty way, just like he did with Daniel Pobia and his team. Now that very village, Vivati, that was, you know, the most difficult village is a shining example of what God has done. So become part of our program. Join us in the extension of God's kingdom.
0: Well, thanks for sharing that. I love that there's opportunities to support right from home and to bring that reminder right to your Thanksgiving table as you gather with family. And it just makes it come full circle. So thank you so much for sharing. And Ravi, I really appreciate you taking the time tonight to chat with us and to share more about your story and about MAI, how it got started and the incredible work that you're doing today. Thank you, Cody.
1: Thank you, Keelan. This has been a very enjoyable time talking with both of you and it's incredible how you both have you know dedicated yourself to the finish line and what you do and you continue to encourage ministries like ours to greater service for
0: the lord thank you so much thank you for having me hey thanks so much for listening to the show guys If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we'd love to hear from you. And now a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who's living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we'd love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line and they don't have to have all the answers. Only a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we'd be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through a website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Finally, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 34. That's it for today. We'll see you next time.